Welcome to the podcast of Grace Community Bible Church. We hope and pray that you are blessed, challenged, and inspired by this message. For other sermons or more information, visit us at gracebiblechurch.org.au. This morning, as I said before, we're going to look at Genesis 27 from verses 30 through Genesis 28 and verse 9. Really, the this whole section, what we did last week, which is from Genesis 26, 34 onwards, all the way down to Genesis 28 and verse 9, it's, it's one unit. And really, it, how you understand that is on the, as one unit is on either side of this unit is the marriage of Esau. On either side, they serve as bookends. And right in the middle of it is this whole thing about the blessing. In fact, if you read this section from 26 to 26, 34 to 28, 9, the word bless or blessing occurs about 28 times. So that's really the, the big thing that's going on throughout this whole unit from 26, 34 all the way to 28, 9. About God's blessing and particularly this covenantal blessing that is going to be passed on to Jacob. And last week we saw some of it. We saw part one of Isaac blessing Jacob and we saw how in that first section everyone is acting out in sin. Isaac is blind. It's not just physically blind, but there's a certain spiritual blindness about him as well. And he's going against what God has revealed, and he wants to simply give all the blessings to his favorite son, Esau. Then we saw of how uh, Rebecca is then scheming, and she's manipulating, and she's plotting. And Jacob is no better where he himself is a grown man, at least 40 years old, if not older, and he goes and deceives his father, and his father unknowingly blesses him. So this morning we're going to continue on from there, from where we left off last week. And so I've titled this morning's sermon as Isaac Blesses Jacob, Part 2. And really, again, it surrounds the issue of blessing. And we'll look at this section from verse 30 all the way to 28.9 under four headings. First, we look at the godless remorse. And, and really, it's a godless remorse over losing the blessing in verses 30 to 40. Then we'll look at the painful consequence from verses 41 to 46. And really, it has to do with the painful consequence of trying to snatch the blessing, to take things into one's own hand. And then we'll see the undeserved grace of God's blessing in verses 1 through 5 of Genesis 28. And then lastly, we'll see the futile attempt again to try and earn a blessing in verses 6 through 8 of Genesis 28. And again, here we'll see much in terms of the human tendency to sin and, and what uh, remorse and repentance looks like and, and really the amazing grace of God as well. 
So firstly, the godless remorse, and really it's the godless remorse of Esau over losing the blessing in verses 30 to 40. Now remember, Jacob has just pretended to be his brother Esau, you know, wearing the uh, hairy skin of goats and, and gave him that delicious meal, deceiving his blind father Isaac. And at this point, you know, Isaac's belly is very happy. And unknowingly, Isaac has blessed Jacob, thinking that was Esau. And Jacob leaves the scene, and Isaac is probably just about to just take a nap or just rest again. And just, as the text says, immediately after, it's almost like Jacob just walks out, and within a few seconds, Esau walks in. Look at verse 30 and 31. As soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, when Jacob had scarcely gone out from the presence of Isaac, his father, Esau, his brother, came in from his hunting. He also prepared delicious food and brought it to his father. And he said to his father, Let my father arise and eat of his son's game that you may bless me. So now Esau has gone hunting and he's, he's, he's made his delicious food. And as soon as Jacob has left, he's just walked into the tent again to give Isaac this delicious food so that Isaac can bless Esau. Now remember, Esau was a godless man. He had no regard for his birthright. And from a human perspective, it was the one who had the birthright that would be part of that promised line. But he had no regard for it. And so he sold his birthright for just some red red, remember, just some red lentil soup. And then we saw how he married two Canaanite women, again showing he had no regard for the things of God, for the purposes of God or the promises of God. So now if you're wondering, so then why is Esau wanting the blessing from Isaac? I mean, he despised and disregarded his birthright in the first place. So why does he so want this blessing? Well, when you look at the whole picture and you read this entire section, what you'll understand is that all Esau wants is simply the physical aspects of the blessing. I mean, to have fruitful land and material prosperity, and then to be a kingly figure where others would bow down to you and you are over other nations, and then to have that protection where those who curse you will, curse, will be cursed and those who bless you will be blessed, that kind of divine protection. I mean, who wouldn't want that? All those material blessings. So even though the Lord is actually going to use all these physical blessings to bring about his plan of salvation and ultimately bring about the Messiah, all Esau is focused on is the physical aspect of the blessing. But there's no concern, no spiritual concern. There's no concern for God or his plans or his purposes. 
So now as Esau approaches his father with this delicious meal and asks him to bless him, remember Isaac is not deaf. He recognizes the voice of his favorite son Esau. And he realizes, hang on a second, the, the guy who came before, I had said he sounded a lot like Jacob. Even though he smelt and felt and even made a meal very similar to Esau. So it's slowly dawning on Isaac what has happened. And he asks a rhetorical question. Really, he's just voicing out what's going on in his mind as he's processing what has just happened. As he listens to the voice of his favorite son. And so he asks this rhetorical question And we see this in verse 32. His father Isaac said to him, Who are you? He answered, I'm your son, your firstborn Esau. Then Isaac trembled very violently and said, Who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me? And I ate it before you came, and I have blessed him. And yes, he shall be blessed. You see, now when it fully dawns on Isaac what has happened, Isaac trembles very violently is what the text says. The shock and terror of what has happened makes his body to violently shake. See, Isaac's plan all this while was to give all of the blessings exclusively to his beloved son Esau. And that plan has been shattered. And he realizes instead he has blessed his other son, Jacob. And it's almost like Isaac's spiritual blindness has now come off and he can now spiritually see once again. Because Isaac knew of God's word that that Jacob would be served by the older brother Esau. He knew that the Lord had declared that Jacob would be the promised seed who would carry the covenant blessings and the promises. And even though Isaac tried to go against what God had said, exactly as God had said, Jacob is now blessed. God had overruled. And so Isaac is shaken to the core of his being because he realizes God's word has come to pass. He realizes he had been fighting against God. You know, Isaac is essentially saying, yes, Jacob deceived me, but God was providentially working through it all to bring about what he had purposed. And who am I to try and fight God then? And so Isaac is shaken to the core of his beings and his spiritual eyes are clear now. And so Isaac says at the end of verse 33, and yes, he shall be blessed. He's acknowledging that God's will alone will come to pass. 
It's not what I think of. God's will alone shall come to pass. And yes, he shall be blessed. Now verse 34 says, As soon as Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me, even me also, O my father. See, Esau is beside himself. He's devastated, deeply hurt, and a bitterness is growing inside his heart. And he desperately still wants the blessing from his father. And so Isaac replies, verse 35, But he said, Your brother came deceitfully, and he has taken away your blessing. Esau said, is he not rightly named Jacob? Remember, Jacob means heel grabber, one who grabs the heel. Because when he was born, remember, as the second twin, he grabbed the heel of his brother. Now the real meaning of Jacob's name is coming to fruition. As one who will grab another's heel to supplant them, to trip them over so that he can get what he wants where he'll be deceptive and he'll do whatever he needs to to get what he wants. So Esau says, For he has cheated me these two times. He took away my birthright, and behold, now he has taken away my blessing. And then he said, Have you not reserved a blessing for me? See, what's interesting here is, Esau is putting all the blame on on Jacob. He takes no personal responsibility for the fact that he had no regard for the birthright in the first place. Because ultimately, it's the one who has the birthright, who has that concern for spiritual things, will finally be the one who will be part of the promised line. But he had no regard for that. He's not taking any responsibility for that. He had given up that, that privilege when he said, no, nah, I, I don't care about this birthright. And yet here he takes no personal responsibility and puts the blame entirely on Jacob and pleads with his father for a blessing. Verse 37. Isaac answered and said to Esau, Behold, I have made him lord over you, and all his brothers I have given to him for servants. And with grain and wine I have sustained him. What then can I do for you, my son? See, Isaac is affirming this is what he has blessed Jacob with. This is what I have done. And, and it is going to be fulfilled and there is nothing that Isaac can do about it. See, the thing about these kind of patriarchal blessings is that it cannot be taken back. It's almost like a prophecy. Like it's absolutely binding and once you say it, you can't undo it. You can't take it back once it's given. And because Isaac had given all of his blessings to Jacob, even though he was thinking it was Esau, all his blessings he had given to Jacob, there's no more blessing left now to give Esau. 
So verse 38, it says, Esau said to his father, have you but one blessing, my father? Bless me, even me also, O my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. I mean, this is a really sad scene. It's a picture of someone who is hopeless in every sense of the word, and even in a spiritual sense. Here's this manly man, Esau, this strong, robust man, wailing and weeping almost like a baby. And with all the pleading from his beloved son Esau, the only thing that Isaac can do is because Isaac has got no blessing left, he's given it all to Jacob, is give Esau the inverse of the blessing given to Jacob. Just the opposite of the blessing. And really it's just affirming that the blessing has been given to Jacob. Look at verse 39. It says, Then Isaac his father answered and said to him, Behold, away from the fatness of the earth shall your dwelling be, and away from the dew of heaven on high. So while Jacob is blessed with fruitful land and material blessing, Esau would be away from that blessing, away from the fatness and the dew. Esau, his land, the land of Edom in the wilderness, would be a parched and fruitless land. He will be away from the promised land. Then he says, verse 40, By your sword you shall live, and you shall serve your brother. So instead of being a kingly figure and have others and other nations coming down to bow before him, Esau and his descendants would be at, first of all, at constant war with others. He would live by the sword, constantly fighting with others. And instead of Jacob serving him, Esau and his descendants would serve Jacob and his descendants. And lastly, he says, but when you grow restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck. I mean, the picture is almost of a, you know, you can think of some kind of domesticated animal that finally breaks off the yoke and goes wild. It almost reminds you of what was told to Ishmael, that he would be a wild donkey of a man. Now, this whole section, it, it, it's very tragic. I mean, it's sad, it's hopeless. And seeing Esau so hopeless with no blessing, crying and weeping, it, it really is a picture of a hopeless man forsaken by God. But I want to remind you just in terms of culpability from Esau's side. Esau is a godless man. He has no concern for the seed of the promise. 
He was not concerned about whether or not he would be in that line of descent that God was planning. That's why he despised his birthright, had no regard for his birthright. He had no interest in God or his purposes. His only interest was in the material aspects of the blessing. So really, the, the reason Esau is wailing and in such deep sorrow is because he has lost the material of physical blessings. Because he's lost the temporal blessings that he thought he could avail. It's not because Esau is being repentant here. See, he's not saying, Lord, forgive me, I'm a sinner. I've been living my life without any regard for you. He's not saying, Lord, forgive me, for I have sinned against you. His sorrow is not over his immorality in marrying Canaanite women or his disregard for his birthright and being godless. No, his sorrow is simply over the fact that material blessing has been lost. And that's why the author of Hebrews picks up on this and talks about Esau. And we looked at this a few weeks ago, but I want to look at this again. Turn to Hebrews 12, verses 14 through 17. Hebrews 12, 14 through 17. It says, strive for peace with everyone, for the holiness without which, and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral and unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent though he sought it with tears. See that last part especially, I, I just want to clarify that this this is not saying that you know Esau was trying to be repentant. He was trying to trust in God and turn away from his godless ways and somehow God still rejected him. That's not what Hebrews is saying. And that's not what he did. No, Esau was not sorrowful and full of tears over what he had done, over how he was before God. No, he was sorrowful simply over the loss of temporal blessing. See, the Bible talks about two kinds of sorrows. Worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. And we read about that this morning in 2 Corinthians 7.10, where it reads, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas godly grief produces death. See, worldly sorrow is, is just self-pity. It's a focus on self. 
It's a sorrow of either getting caught in sin. It's a sorrow of, uh, you know, over the consequences that sin, sin may bring about. Or it's a sorrow of the loss of earthly, bless, earthly temporal blessings. That's what worldly sorrow is. Just a world, uh, self-pity over the loss of the, uh, the, over those things. But godly sorrow, on the other hand, is directed to God. Where the person says, against you and you alone, O Lord, have I sinned. And there's a desire to get right with God first and foremost. And it's the same worldly sorrow if you think of a person in the New Testament we see with Judas Iscariot. Because after he betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, it says that he, he had a certain kind of remorse. There was a shame and humiliation of having betrayed Jesus. But there was no turning back to Jesus for the forgiveness of his sin. There was none of that for Judas. And it's a similar thing with Esau here. There's remorse, there's regret for the loss of material things. There's a lot of tears. But there's no repentance from sin. There's no repentance from that godly lifestyle. There's no turning away from that lifestyle and then turning to God. There's again no regard for God or his purposes for Esau. As, as sorrowful and as hope, hopeless a situation it looks like, Esau still has no regard for God and his purposes. See, if Esau was truly repentant, he would have recognized first and foremost that this is God's sovereign doing and his will. That his brother Jacob would be the next heir. He would have then submitted to the fact, oh God is going to accomplish his salvation plan through my brother Jacob. It's all about God and his plans and purposes that he's bringing about to redeem this world. And, I, and what I want is what God wants. And I want God's salvation. And if he was truly repentant that way, then he would have attached himself to his brother Jacob. Because even though there's no blessing from his father, God has also said, for those who bless Jacob, there will be blessing. But Esau doesn't do any of that while he's remorseful and it's a pitiable situation. Esau is not repentant. He's not thinking about God. In fact, you see a very different response from Esau. And this brings us to the second section of the passage, the painful consequence. The painful consequence in verses 41 to 46. Verse 41. Now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, The days of mourning for my father are approaching. Then I will kill my brother. I mean, you, just think about the difference in the response between Isaac with what has happened 
and Esau's response. Isaac, his father, when he realized what has happened, he, you know, his spiritual eyes became clear. And to the core of his being, he was shaken because he understood this is God's plan and God's purposes and that's what's coming to pass. And I submit to that and I'm not going to, I've been trying to fight God and I'm not going to do that anymore. So there's a, there's a repentant response from Isaac. Jacob, on the other hand, as he sees what has happened, his heart has in no way softened to the things of God. In fact, when he realized that God had, Jacob had got all the blessing, that hurt and bitterness grew so much into hate, so much so that he wants to kill his brother once his brother has died. I mean, Esau wants to kill God's seed of promise. Does that sound familiar? Yeah, sounds like Cain. Sounds like Ishmael. Esau is really showing himself here to be the seed of the serpent. And to even think this is God's chosen one, and for him to say, I'm going to kill that person, again, it is showing us he has no regard for the things of God. Verse 42. But the words of Esau, her older son, were told to Rebekah. So she sent and called Jacob, her younger son, and said to him, Behold, your brother Esau comforts himself about you by planning to kill you. See, in all this deep sorrow and turmoil that Esau is going through, the only comfort, the only peace that Esau has with all that has happened is the thought of killing his brother once his father has died. Esau is clearly nursing a grudge. And instead of submitting to God's providence and will, Esau wants revenge. Now Rebecca, knowing this well and, his maternal, and her maternal instincts kick in, she comes up with another plan to save her son Jacob. Verse 43 onwards. Now therefore my son... Obey my voice. Arise, flee to Laban, my brother, in Haran, and stay with him a while until your brother's fury turns away, until your brother's anger turns away from you and he forgets what you have done to him. Then I will send and bring you from there. Why should I be bereft of you both in one day? So Rebecca, knowing the danger, her plan is for Jacob to flee to a brother Laban in Haran and for him to stay there for a while. It's literally, uh, it reads, to stay there for some days till Esau's fury subsides. And then she ends by saying, why should I mourn the loss of both my sons in one day. And what she means by that is, if the time comes and Jacob is still here and Esau is so resolute like this, and if Esau kills Jacob, 
then Esau himself would be avenged by divine decree. Because in Genesis 9-6, where God had said there would be a death sentence for anyone who murders. Anyone who takes a human life will be murdered. So she's thinking, okay, if Esau kills Jacob, there will be someone to avenge Jacob's death, and Esau too will be killed. And in that case, both Jacob and Esau will be killed the same day. So that's Rebecca's plan to save her son, Jacob. But she's obviously someone who likes to take things into her own hands. So listen to what she does in verse 46. Then Rebekah said to Isaac, I loathe my life because of the Hittite women. If Jacob marries one of the Hittite women like these, one of the women of the land, what good will, by, will my life to, to me? This is the first time we see Rebecca speaking to Isaac, her husband. But again, here, she is scheming and manipulating. You know, maybe she thought if she tells the truth to Isaac, you know, that truth will come out that she was also behind the whole deceptive plan and she didn't want that to come out. Or maybe she thought, you know, Isaac has always favored Esau and he might not do anything, even though Jacob was in danger. Whatever the reason, Rebecca doesn't tell the truth. Rebecca still manipulates things and brings to attention, to Isaac's attention, something that she thinks will be enough of a thing for Isaac to send Jacob away. So Rebecca knows the, the Hittite wives of Esau, they've been a source of grief to both her and Isaac. And so she uses that issue of these Hittite wives of Esau, that sin of her other son, to use that as leverage and say, hey, if my other son Jacob does the same, life will only get worse. And she knows, oh, this is going to be enough leverage to get, Jacob to, uh, get Isaac to send Jacob away. You know, you really have to wonder at this point about the kind of marriage that Isaac and Rebecca had at this point. It's a far cry from that wonderful, you know, matchmaking that happened as Abraham's servant went and got this beautiful woman from Padan Aram. You know, in, once, in one sense, in this section, we see that God is working behind the scenes. God is sovereignly working out his plan. Jacob, the promised seed who is to carry, out, carry on God's plan, is being protected. And so he's going to be sent away. So God is working behind the scenes in that. But remember, as we saw even a few weeks ago, God still works, sovereignly works, in and through even the sinful choices and bad decisions of people as well. So at the same time in this section, we see the sinful actions of his people. 
And they are responsible for those actions. They're not puppets. They are willfully doing these things and God will hold them responsible for these actions. And these actions will have consequences. As for Rebecca, though she manipulated everything so Jacob could have the blessing and so that Jacob could be safe, and that she wouldn't lose her beloved son. There is a sense in which she lost her beloved son after this scene. Because Jacob would not be gone for a while. He wouldn't be gone for a few days or a few months. In fact, he would be gone for two decades. And she would never see her beloved son again, because by the time Jacob returns back to the land, she would be gone, she would be dead. As for Jacob, the one who got all the blessing, including the blessing of fruitful land, well, because of his sinful ways, he would now have to be away from the land. And so far as we know, things don't go so well for God's chosen when they go away from the promised land. But still, Jacob has to run away because his brother Esau is trying to kill him. For why? Because of Jacob's deception. And then beyond that, Jacob will get a taste of his own medicine when his uncle Laban, for many years, will deceive him. And then even years after that, his own children will deceive him, telling him that his favorite son Joseph was killed by an animal when they had actually just sold him off as a slave. So for many years, Jacob would reap the consequences of his sin. And you say, why? Because God loved Jacob. That's right, because God loved Jacob. Think of it like this. When a child sins, the parent gives the child some sort of consequence for their sin. They discipline their child. Now often the consequence can be painful, and the child may not necessarily like that consequence. But the reason why the parent gives the consequence to the child for that sin is precisely because the parent loves that child. Because the parent doesn't want that child to go the way of that sin. That's why the consequence is given. And similarly, God gives us consequences for our sin sometimes even long-term consequences, depending on the kind of sin, just like our earthly parent. Because he doesn't want to go the way of our sin. He knows the tendencies of our wicked heart. He loves us too much to let us go our sinful ways. Listen to the words of Hebrews 12, 6-11. 
That very same chapter that talks about Esau in that hopeless condition where no repentance was found in him. The beginning of that chapter in Hebrews 12, 6 to 11 says this. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Essentially saying, if God is not disciplining you for your sin, then it's evidence that you're not a child of God. Because he's just letting you go off in your sin. Verse 9, besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. That's why God disciplines his children when they sin. Because he loves them too much to let them go their way. And as for Jacob, oh, he's going to be disciplined for many years to get rid of his deceptive ways and his self-sufficiency and that wanting to supplant and wanting to grab things and, and that kind of stuff. So that finally, as God disciplines him, it would cause him to finally trust in the Lord and that he would rest in him and he would grow in grace and the righteousness of the Lord. And that's the kind that will ultimately bring glory to God and will actually be for his own good. So now we move from the painful, painful consequence to the undeserved grace of God's blessing in verses 1 through 5 of Genesis 28. Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Arise, go to Padan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take as your wife from there one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. Well, it seems like Rebecca's persuasive techniques worked. And with Isaac's spiritual eyes now becoming more clear once again, he understands that he had failed Esau because Esau had married Canaanite women. And he doesn't want the same for Jacob. He doesn't want Jacob marrying godless Canaanite women, people who are under the curse of God. And especially now that Jacob is the covenant heir, part of the line of that promised seed, he especially wants to make sure that Jacob does not marry the Canaanite women of the land. 
Now verses 3 to 5, Isaac repeats his blessing to Jacob. But there are some differences here that you see. See, unlike the other time when Isaac thought he was blessing Esau, now in actuality, consciously, Isaac is blessing Jacob. He's not being deceived, but he's actually consciously blessing Jacob. What is he doing by that? He's publicly recognizing so that there would be no doubt for anyone, no doubt for Rebecca, no doubt for Jacob or anyone else that Jacob indeed is the covenant heir of God's promises. Jacob is making it clear that this is God's will, that Jacob be blessed, and I'm now submitted to God's will, even though I wasn't previously. And so he's consciously now blessing him again to make that known. This is a repentant Isaac that we see here. His eyes are now fixed on the Lord. And now all he wants is what God wants, and he's not trying to thwart God's plan. I would say this in itself is evidence of God's grace in Isaac's life. God had promised to Isaac, my presence will be with you. And it is precisely because God's presence was with Isaac and did not let him go in his sin, Isaac has come back to the Lord. There's another thing or point of difference here. Before in his blessing, you know, Isaac, he talked about the grain and the wine and fatness. And I guess by implication, you could say it was talking about the fruitful land. And then uh, about the other nations bowing down to him, you could say by implication, he's talking about more descendants and becoming a great nation. But Isaac now reiterates the blessing on Jacob. But it is so much more clearer that he's talking about the Abrahamic blessing that is being passed down. And there's even a clear God-centeredness in the way Isaac now blesses Jacob, unlike the last time. He starts off by saying, verse 3, God Almighty bless you. God Almighty bless you. El Shaddai, that's what God Almighty is. The name that God revealed to Abraham back in Genesis 17. So in one sense, Isaac is slowly connecting this to, oh, this is the same Abrahamic blessing. But in another sense, he's also reminding Jacob that the blessing comes from God Almighty alone from El Shaddai alone. He's saying, Jacob, you're not being blessed because of how clever you've been or how deceptive you've been, and now you've won. That's not why you're being blessed. Nor is it because I'm coming to you because for some reason now I'm favoring you. 
No, Jacob, it has nothing to do with us. Because if God didn't will this to come, this blessing would not come to you. So understand this, Jacob. The blessing is coming to you only because God has chosen to bless you. It is nothing because of anything that I did or you did. It is the blessing of El Shaddai, God Almighty. He says, God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may become a company of peoples. To be fruitful and multiply, we've, we know that as we've gone through Genesis, that's the blessing that God originally gave Adam in the garden, to be fruitful and multiply. So this blessing is also connect, connecting to that Adamic blessing, God's original intention for his creation. In other words, the blessing is connected to God's plan to restore the world and to bless the world and to fill this world with his glory. And it says, so that you become a company of peoples or a gathering of peoples. A gathering of different groups of people who belong to God. And this is how God's glory is going to be filled on this earth one day as he will reverse the curse and blessing will be on this earth. Now verse 4, he says, May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. Now Abraham makes it very explicit. Hey, this is the Abrahamic blessing that is being passed on. Have no doubts about this. That you and your descendants will possess the land of Canaan that God had originally promised to Abraham. And so here again, we see the three components of the Abrahamic blessing. Land, seed, and blessing to the nations. And we know that ultimately this is also about God's plan of salvation and the coming of Jesus the Messiah to reverse the curse and to restore blessing on this earth for his name's sake. So it is that blessing, that plan of salvation that is now being passed on to Jacob, showing that Jacob is now the rightful heir of the covenant promises. He is the next head of the covenant family. Verse 5 says, Thus Isaac sent Jacob away, and he went to Padan Aram, to Laban, the son of Bethuel the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, Jacob's and Esau's mother. Notice it says, Rebekah, it doesn't say Rebekah, Esau, and Jacob's mother, but it says Rebekah, Jacob, and Esau's mother. Meaning, Jacob is now over his older brother. He is now the covenant head. He has preeminence over his older brother. Now I want you to think about Jacob for a minute. There's nothing spectacular about Jacob. 
In fact, Jacob has only shown himself to be a lying, deceitful son and brother. And yet, Jacob receives the blessing. But how can he be the heir of salvation? How can he be the next patriarch of Israel? How? For no other reason other than to display God's undeserving grace to Jacob. That's the only reason. I love what one commentator said about this, sec- about this section. He says, quote, In spite of sin and bitter fruits that sin brings in its wake, God's purposes to bless his people are eternally secure. Grace is at work in the lives of the patriarchs, and the grace of God will not let them go. End quote. This is a great comfort to us as believers, as God's children, as, as Christians, that God's grace will not let us go. Yes, our sinful actions may bring about consequences in our lives, but that's also for our good. It's because God loves us. But beyond that, God's purposes to bless His people are eternally secure. Nothing can take that away if that is what God has promised to His people. Sin and its consequence will not have the last word. It is God's grace in and through Jesus Christ that will abound for every Christian, for God's grace will not let his children go. And what a comfort that is for us who are his children. And this brings us to our last and final point, the futile attempt, really to earn a blessing in verses 6 to 8. Now Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Padan Aram to take a wife from there. And that as he blessed him, he directed him, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite woman. And that Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and gone to Padan Aram. So Esau saw that the Canaanite women did not please Isaac, his father. And Esau went to Ishmael and took as his wife, besides the wife he had, Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebaioth. So Esau has observed that his father Isaac has now very consciously blessed Isaac. And he has sent him away to get a wife, not from the Canaanites, but from the family of Abraham. And the fact that Isaac has done this has made Esau really aware of how displeased his parents are about him marrying Canaanite women. So in an attempt to make things better and still gain some favor and some blessing from his father. He goes to his father's brother's home. 
Ishmael's home. So that's not a Canaanite home now. And he marries Ishmael's daughter, Mahela. See, the problem here again is this, that while it's within the family, Ishmael and his household, they're still godless people. They're still people who rejected God, and we saw that as we went through the life of, of Ishmael. So again, what it shows is Esau is not really concerned about God and his promises. All he wants is some material blessing and favor, and he thought that by marrying someone connected to family, that might qualify him to get some material blessing. Esau is a picture of a godless and a hopeless man trying to earn favor and blessing. And those who are lost in this world is so much like this. Oh, I'll do this so God can make me prosperous. I'll do this so God can make me healthy. Oh, I'll keep doing this so God can make me wealthy. I'll do all these good things like going to church or doing good to others or praying multiple prayers a day or, or even crying and wailing over sin so that I can get all those temporal blessings from God. Or maybe I'll put myself in harsh and difficult situations and you know, have nothing, live in this kind of self-defeating, sacrificial kind of life again to earn some kind of blessing from God, some temporal blessing from God. Let me tell you, friend, if you're listening this morning and this is you, you will find yourself in a very miserable state and it'll lead to your ruin. You see, unless you come to God to get God, unless you recognize your sin and that you stand guilty before a God who is holy, and unless you come to him saying, God, please forgive me, have mercy on me, I want to be made right with you. Your life will lead to ruin and ultimate damnation. Friend, let me tell you, if that's where you stand this morning, there is still good news for you. Because this good and gracious and holy God, 2,000 years after this incident, or 2,000 years ago, came in the second person of Jesus Christ. And though he lived on this earth only doing the will of God, he was finally put on a cross. And you know what happened on the cross? He was forsaken by God the Father. You know that helpless, hopeless situation that we found Esau in? Jesus experienced that and way more on the cross. 
And that's why he cried out on that cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Where God poured down not his favor, but his damnation on Jesus Christ on that cross for sinful people like you and me. For, for the Jacobs and the Rebeccas of this world. But then he rose up on the third day and he provided a way, way by which sinners like you and me can be made right with God and can be reconciled with God. So here's the thing, friend. If you're just thinking about Jesus Christ simply because you don't want to go to hell, you are simply thinking about, oh, I don't want the consequences of my sin. That will get you nowhere, my friend. No. Will you not see the goodness of God and the grace of God and the mercy of God for who God is as he has revealed himself in Jesus Christ. Would you not turn to him and see who he is and what he has done? And if you say this morning, yes, I believe in Jesus Christ, I believe in what he has done, then I would say to you, then turn from your sin. Turn from living for yourself. Turn from self-pity. And turn to Jesus and follow hard after him because that's what it means to be a Christian. For those of us who are Christians, this whole section, yes, we see so much of sin and pain and conflict. And I'm sure we see the tendencies of our own heart in the sin of some of the people here. But oh, that we would understand that God's grace in Jesus Christ will never let us go. And because of that, and because we still see the tendencies in our heart to, to wander away from him, when we wander away, we would be quick to repent and come to the feet of Jesus and rely on him. Prone to wander, prone to leave the God I love, O come thou fount of every blessing. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you because you are God and we are not. Your ways are higher than our ways. Your wisdom is higher than our wisdom. Yet you are a just God. You're a good God. You're a merciful God. You're a gracious God. And we thank you that you have revealed yourself this way to us through Jesus Christ. And we pray that as your children, we would live in light of who you are as you've revealed yourself through Jesus Christ. And we would live all the days of our life clinging to him and making much of him. And we pray all this in his name. Amen.